Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Could you guys please stand with me? And uh, I'm going to read the passage that we'll be in today. This is from um, Genesis chapter 4. If you're new to Oak City, we we stand to read the passage as a way of acknowledging that God's words matter more than our words and that we're grateful that he's given them to us. So I'll read this and then say, this is the word of the Lord, and you guys will say, thanks be to God. Okay. Uh, uh, Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well... Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can have a seat. Thank you. We hear a lot, um, hear this a lot about how we have never been more divided as a people. And I don't know how we would know that because we've only been around for as long as we've been around. And so we're kind of speculating. But I could, but it does seem like we're really divided just in the, you know, the time that, that I've been paying attention. And, um, uh, and it seems like part of the reason we're, we had stuff to be divided about, but also we have no, we just have a, we don't have as much capacity to sit down and have a conversation about the things that have divided us. And so it just has gotten harder to find any resolution about them. So, but even this week, like I think the president declared that COVID is over. Do I have that right? The pandemic is over. Okay. I bet we could have a conversation about whether that's the case or not and end up in different places about it. Like, go ahead and have a conversation with somebody about that this week. But you wouldn't do it, would you? Because you just don't want to deal with it. Uh, because that's what it is. We have an election coming up. How many of you think that um, we will have disputes about the validity of the election no matter who gets elected? Right? For months. That is a new thing. That, I don't remember that ever happening um, you know, a, 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 as well as like people invading the Capitol and guys with a Buffalo headdress sitting at the deal where you'd have the State of the Union. Like, that still doesn't seem like a real thing that actually happened, you know. Um, they raided the president's house. We could probably have a conversation about that and then some different places about it. And I don't, it may have been a completely valid thing. They've never done it before, and we're still not sh- sure. And like, there's just been reason over the past few years to have some distrust of the FBI that raided it. And so that can divide us. They shipped a group of immigrants from Texas or Florida to Martha's Vineyard. We could probably be divided in a discussion about what happened there and whether it was the right thing to do or not, right? 
maybe we are more divided than we've ever been. It seems like uh, we've always been divided. I was listening to an interview this week where a woman was talking. She said, nah, she's an older woman, um, African-American woman, had been in Birmingham in the 60s. She's like, we're not more divided than we were then. Like, she went through the civil rights movement in the South and talked about Vietnam, and you can just, like, remember seeing pictures of the marches on Washington and a million people on the mall back then protesting things, and it seems like maybe not. Uh, maybe we're not more divided. I can remember reading stories about how in the early days of the nation, Congress had to pass a law out, outlawing dueling with guns as a way of resolving conflict, right? So it seems like we've probably always been divided. I started thinking about this song by Billy Joel, We Didn't Start the Fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. Maybe he's right. I know that dates me. The only reason I really think about that song is because my kids listen to it a lot. And I, and I tell them, like, this is on the low end of the Billy Joel spectrum. Like, if we wanted to have some Billy Joel time, this would not be the song, you know? But maybe he's right. Um, we're in a series uh, on, on God's presence. And so how it's really the sweep of the Bible is in the beginning... We see, and we saw last week, God's perfect presence, and then his presence is going to be interrupted and absent, and then he's going to pursue us, and we're going to get his presence back, and how the end, it's the dwelling place of God was with man. And really, the story is all about uh, presence, but, but his presence speaks into the idea of conflict and how divided we are. Today, we're in chapter four. There's really four people in the whole story, and one of them is going to kill another one. Like, that's conflict. Maybe Billy Joel was right, and we've always been this divided. Uh, but this chapter, these three and four, and I'm going to be in four today, but I'm going to step back into three for a few minutes during my message, go a long way, I think, to describing why we're so divided and why we're so sensitive, why we're on edge, why we're so quick to attack somebody else, and why we're so defensive when we feel like somebody's attacking ourselves, not just like as a culture, but as people why it can be so hard to get along with the people that we're closest to and we love the most, and why we can be so hard for them to get along with. And I think a lot is explained in these couple chapters. So last week, we looked at the Garden of Eden and the perfect presence of God in, in, by chapter 4. His presence isn't absent, but it is definitely disrupted, and you start to see how the effect of that ripples through our relationships and the whole story. And if I had to sum up what I'm going to say today, it's this, that when we pull away from God, we are just naturally going to be pulled away from each other. When we pull away from God, we'll naturally, the dynamics of the whole thing and how we work and how we're wired for God pull us away from each other. And when we draw near to God, we're able to draw near to each other. So um, just a little review from last week. We saw them in the garden in chapters 1 and 2. They're naked and unashamed. They're experiencing God's presence on a regular basis. Uh, they, know that, they know that God loves them. Um, and they know that God has declared them to be good, and those are two questions we're asking ourselves all the time. Am I loved and am I good? And they had answers, uh, and we need it from outside of ourselves. We need it from the Lord, ultimately, and they had it from the Lord. The serpent comes in, tricks them into believing that God doesn't really love them, um, that God loves himself and wants to control them, and that's why he's given them the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they can't trust God. So they disobey that one command, um, and and they instantly realize they've screwed it up, and now they are bad, and they, they lose their sense uh, of God's love for them. And then God declares the curses, sends them out of the garden, and presence is disrupted. And then we get to chapter 4, 
Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. So a shepherd and a farmer. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering from the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Here's where I want to start with this and first laying a foundation for it. Everyone is religious. Everyone is religious. Um, we see that in them. Their default is to bring an offering to the Lord. Today, people do that. Even Everyone is seeking the presence of God. Everyone's seeking that validation in some way from outside of themselves. Everyone has a sense that something's wrong and needs to be fixed. They might define the wrong differently. They might call sin something. Everybody might define it differently or use a different term to label it, but they've got it. They've got a different means to fix the problem, some form of salvation. Um, they have a different like end goal, like heaven looks something different to everybody, but everybody's got it, and there's a, there's a religion within that. There's a code of ethics. When the code of ethics is violated, people demand justice. There's an offering that's necessary for reconciliation, even if the offering is just an apology. Uh, there's a sense of worship that is something outside of them are going to tell them whether or not they can be good, and so, so all the, and I'm not going to go into all this, but like so many things. Our stuff can be a form of religion. Sex can be a form of religion. Like in our, just right now, gender ideology can be a justice issue for some, but it can go past that to being like just a religion in and of itself. Um, so many of our contemporary issues can fit in that category. I heard a guy talking this week about how the secular state absent God becomes a God. Like the state becomes God when God isn't in a culture, and he chronicled from the French Revolution to some of our modern-day movements about how these things really serve as religions and have religious aspects to them and doctrine and liturgy and rituals and excommunication for the dissenters, which is cancel culture, you know? And so everyone's religious. Um, there's an essay by C.S. Lewis called Equality that I thought about and I put in the weekly a couple of weeks ago when the queen passed away, a couple days after she passed away, um, and in it, he talks about how we need equality, like we're made for equality, we seek equality, but really, there are some ways in life that we're really made for inequality. And he said, equality, we have to understand that equality is not, it's more like medicine than it is like food. We're so desperate for equality uh, because we're sick in a way. And so he, um, uh, he talks about some of like just the natural inequalities, and the main one being spiritual, like God is God and we're not. And so that's a natural inequality. Uh, we have parents and children. There's a natural inequality in that that people resist. I think like men and women are equal, but we're different. And now we're trying to like eliminate those differences and have like 100% equality or lack of difference. And we're fighting against something. We need structure and we need authority and we need bosses. But we fight against that because it can be abused. And that's why he said we need equality like we need medicine, like we we're made for inequality in certain aspects of life, but we fight against it because sin will lead us to abuse the inequality, and so we just seek equality in all ways. But he's just pointing out it's not that's not really the way that it was meant to be. And he this reason I put it in that thing a couple weeks ago when the Queen died is because he said as, as he's he was British, and he says as Brits we have to appreciate the fact that we have the monarchy, and that satisfies our desire for inequality, even as we seek equality. So he writes this, we Britons should rejoice that we've contrived to reach much legal equality without losing our ceremonial monarchy. 
For they are right in the midst of our lives is that which satisfies the craving for inequality. Now, how many of you paid any attention to what happened with the queen and her funeral? Did anybody watch the funeral? Um, the people lined up for, they waited in line for 24 hours. It was a 10-mile long line to see the, did anybody watch this? Like, I flipped on to BBC something to watch it because I was amazed by it. I mean, 10 hours. David Beckham, famous soccer player, waited 12 hours in line. And they did it. And it's like they got in front of the queen's coffin and they didn't really think about what they were going to do. And I don't know what you do in front of a coffin. So they, they get like three seconds before the guy shoes them on. And they're like, oh. And they bowed or they, they genuflected, which I don't know if that's appropriate. Like, it's not Jesus, it's the queen, you know? But they didn't know what to do, but they just wanted to honor the queen. And it was crazy, spectacular, you know? So he says, it satisfies the craving for inequality and acts as a permanent reminder that medicine is not food. Hence, a man's reaction to the monarchy is a kind of test. Monarchy can easily be debunked which it can. The idea that one family represents a whole nation and just gets inherited is a little bit crazy. But watch the faces, mark well the accents of the debunkers. These are men whose taproot in Eden has been cut, whom no rumor of the dance can reach. Men to whom pebbles laid in a row are more beautiful than an arch. Yet even they desire, even, um, even if they desire mere equality, they cannot reach it. And then he says this, where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead. Even famous prostitutes or gangsters, for spiritual nature like bodily nature will be served. Deny it food and it will gobble poison. America, you might not have a monarch, but you have kings and queens that you honor. We don't have a queen. We have Kim Kardashian. We have celebrities, right? And those are the people that we elevate to this status. Give me the queen. Uh, I don't know if you remember seeing this a few years ago, but make America British again. Let's do it. Because we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna elevate something, like to satisfy that in, innate desire for us. We're religious. Uh, Cain and Abel just bring an offering to the Lord. We're not told why they bring the offering. We're not told that God told them to bring an offering. We're not told that they had any specific instructions about the offering. They just brought the offering. And that's what we do. We're inherently religious people. When you screw something up, you bring an offering to somebody, if, if only an apology or flowers or whatever, it, depending on what, how badly you've screwed something up. Um, where there's an inequality that's deemed valid, you bring honor. Right? If you met a celebrity today, like you treat them differently because why? Uh, this is who we are. And it says, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. This is such a fascinating scene to me. So there's a right way to seek God and a wrong way to seek God. And God, God gets to tell us which is which. Um, there's a proper and an improper offering. And God doesn't tell us exactly what's wrong with Cain's offering and what's right about Abel's offering. I'll give you like what I think and what most commentators think in a minute here, but he doesn't tell us. And maybe he doesn't tell us for the same reason that we're not supposed to eat of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Like, he doesn't owe us an explanation. Um, he, I think it's implied in the passage that he explains to Cain what's wrong and offers to fix it. Uh, but he doesn't, you don't always need an explanation. If you have kids, you don't always give your kids an explanation. If you had parents, your parents didn't always give you an explanation. Um, 
You don't know it to, they don't know it to you, you don't know it to them, and God doesn't know it to us. And all he's doing is saying at the beginning of the scene, Abel, good job. Cain, uh, here's what you need to do next time. There's no indication that he's angry with Cain. Um, there's no like, why can't you just be more like Abel? You know, none of that. Just, hey, let's, let's do that better next time. Uh, but the text says Cain, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. Another translation said he was incensed. Cain is furious uh, and his face fell, which means he's depressed. Like it's, it's just changed his whole countenance, you know? Uh, and it's inconsistent with what's happened in the, in the passage on the outside. God hasn't read him the riot act. He hasn't been shut out. Abel, it doesn't tell us that Abel's in the corner snickering. Um, there's been no consequence to this point. So what's going on in Cain's heart? And that seems to be what God wants to know, too. Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Like, this is easy. If you do well, you'll be accepted. If you don't do well, sin is crouching at your door. It desires for you. It wants to control you, but you must rule over it. Now, to understand what's going on in his heart, let me jump back a chapter to, um, to Genesis chapter 3. And this is what happened as soon as they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is how uh, Genesis describes it. It says, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So all, all of a sudden, they feel some form of shame. Uh, they're exposed. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the first thing they hide from isn't even God. They hide from each other. It's not like they went naked into the trees to hide from God. They covered themselves up first because there was something they didn't want to be exposed to each other in some way. And then God comes onto the scene, says they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Uh, they had known that they were loved and that they were good. Now that they're not good, they're not sure if they're still loved. So they hide, cover up, compensate uh, for what's now missing on the inside and what they've done on the outside. It's a form, it's what people call fig leaf religion. Like it's the first religion that they will cover themselves up and maybe that will make things okay if we're just covered up. And, and we've been doing it ever since in various ways. It says, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. But I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I think about God hearing that, God, I'm afraid of you. Um, and how, I don't know, that must have bummed God out. That the one that he created is now afraid of him and God hasn't done anything. Um, you know, I have four kids. I flipped out a couple times. You know, there were times where I'm sure they were scared of me for some valid reasons, you know. Um, the dog definitely has reasons to be scared of me. It's completely valid. Uh, God has done nothing in that relationship, you know, is experiencing distance. Note also, God doesn't say, take those fig leaves off. Come on out here. Let's hug this out. It's okay. It's no big deal. He doesn't say that. It's a big deal. And he knows it. Before they leave the garden, he'll give them a better covering. Um, with animal skins instead of plants. He says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Uh, and so 
I'll note this too, he's gentle with Cain, and he was gentle with Adam and Eve. He doesn't, like I would, flip out if they had ruined everything that I had created, you know? <laughs> They'd burn the house down, which is essentially what they've done, and he knows it. But he's gentle with them, with his questions. And Adam responds, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. While that is all technically true, it is not necessarily helpful, right? Like the way that reads is the woman you gave me, she did it. That's how it reads. This dummy over here that was your idea, I'll remind you, she gave it to me. Like, it, that's it, man. Now, do we experience the same thing like all the time? Even if we don't say it like that, uh, we're just trying to weasel a lot of things. He doesn't want the blame because he doesn't know what consequence it's going to lead to, so he deflects it, and it's amazing that he deflects it, not just to Eve, but to God himself right here in the third chapter of the Bible. It's a total abdication of responsibility. And in the absence of the perfect presence of God, when we are scared to death, we will scramble and try and pull things together. And maybe the easiest way to do that, if we can't find it um, vertically, is to find it horizontally and compare ourselves to somebody else. I may not be who I'm supposed to be, but at least I'm not alone. Misery loves company, or better yet, I'm better than you are. Uh, When we can't I would say this, when we can't get back into the perfect presence of God, we seek to be God to others, we want to be elevated, or have them be gods to us, identify with something that's elevated to make everything okay. So there's a, I mentioned this book last week, Searching for God Knows What, and he goes through all these dynamics of these few chapters, and um, he, he probably is the first one that suggested, and from a Hebrew scholar that he took, um, that we're wired to get our idea of who we are from outside of ourselves. Like self-esteem is a bit of a myth. You always need someone else to tell you. And when we don't get it from God, we're seeking it from each other. He spends a few chapters, he's got kind of a string he draws through this, where he suggests if an alien came from heaven to earth, the, the first thing that they would notice about us that is out of place is how much we compare ourselves to each other. And so I'm going to read a little extended section um, from this. He says, this, is, this would be the alien's report back to the mothership. Humans as a species are constantly and in every way comparing themselves to one another, which given the brief nature of their existence seems an oddity and for that matter a waste. Nevertheless, this is the driving influence behind every human's social development, their emotional health and sense of joy, and sadly their greatest tragedies. It's as though something that helped them function and live well has gone missing, and they're pining for that missing thing in all sorts of odd methods, none of which are working. He writes, in my opinion, this is how an alien would see the world. It's obvious that there's something wrong with this, something incomplete. The guy who says there isn't anything incomplete is probably the same guy who cries himself to sleep at night or tries to get a lot of people to love him or has terrible prejudice. We all have these tendencies, and they had to come from somewhere. Then he kind of goes through this, and he, he he says, so a few days later, my roommate Grant and I were watching television, and I wondered out loud what an alien would think if he came over to watch some television with us. I wondered what an alien would think of our television shows. He probably wouldn't understand any of it because all the plots have to do with getting and finding the thing that's missing in our souls, only not getting it from God but from other people. If the alien wasn't missing the same thing we were missing, he would sit in my room with Grant and me watching basketball but not understand why we play the game. 
Why do they do that, the alien might say. It's a game, a competition, Grant and I would answer. But why? Why do they play the game? What are they trying to decide? Well, they're trying to decide who's the better basketball team, we would say. The better basketball team? The alien might question, wondering out loud why 20,000 people would show up to find out which basketball team was better than the other. Now, when you put it like that, <laughs> might not make as much sense. Uh, feeling a little judged, Grant and I might change the channel to that no new show on E! called, now this book is 15 years old, called Rank, but the shows are the same, different names. Some of them are the exact same shows. The show that ranks people from best to worst based on some random criteria. The episode might count down to who's the most eligible bachelor, who's the hottest couple, who has the best eyes, best smile, whatever. Then knowing the show was again proving the alien's point, just like basketball, we might turn the channel to that show Survivor, and then over to The Bachelor, and then over to Last Comic Standing or Fear Factor or whatever, and then we'd sort of feel bad because all our television shows are trying to figure out who's better than who, or if they aren't, they're presupposing that one kind of person is better than another, building their comedy or their drama from this presupposition. You guys, the alien might say, you're obsessed. You have to wear a certain kind of clothes, drive a certain car, speak a certain way, live in a certain neighborhood, whatever, all of it so you can be higher on an invisible hierarchy. It's an obsession. You're trying to feel right by comparing yourselves to others. It's ridiculous. I kept thinking about all this, you know, what the alien was saying to grant me, and it caused me to wonder if this thing that makes us compare ourselves is what happened at the fall. It occurred to me that what the alien was saying made sense because now that God was gone, now that he wasn't around to help us feel like we were loved and important and good, we were looking for it in each other, a jury of peers. And then I began to wonder if Adam and Eve were to, sit, were to visit Grant and me and watch Survivor, for example, this is pre-fall Adam and Eve, how they might be, how they might sit around naked and look over at the alien and roll their eyes all the time, making Grant and me feel very uncomfortable. And we might say, well, look at your stupid system, you sit around naked all the time. And they might look over at us as if we were the crazy ones needing to have all kind of fabric in our closets to put on and make ourselves look fancy and less naked. And we would say to them, man, you just don't get it. And they would say to us, man, you just don't get it. I love this book. <laughs> um, when the serpent in The Temptation says, when you eat of the tree, you'll be like God. When you, when you dial through what Scripture says about the serpent, and, and a revelation says that, that the devil was a serpent, and when you look at and some of these things you have to tie together, really, but in Isaiah and Ezekiel, there's some passages about the devil being an angel and, and trying to elevate to God's throne, trying to become like God in that what we want is God is exalted. He's up there. What we want is just to be a little bit up here. We want people to exalt us, and this is just what we do. It's how we think all the time. And um, years ago, I thought this. What we want is someone to look at us and be like, whoa, that guy's got it together. You know, whatever it might be. Uh, the job that they're doing, the clothes that they're wearing, uh, the car that they're driving. Like, we want people to give us a little bit, maybe even to want to be a bit more like us than they are like themselves. Like, we want some whoa. And what we want to avoid at all costs is some, ooh, like, that's unfortunate. Whatever it might be that caused someone to look at us and cringe is the thing we want to avoid at all costs. So we want a little bit of woe, and we want at all costs to avoid getting some, ooh, 
from somebody else. And that's what Adam's doing. He's saying, the woman that you gave me and just pushing her down, like it's more her fault and elevating himself and then doing it to God that you gave me. Like he's the only one that doesn't have any blame in this thing. Um, or at least pulling them down to his level so he doesn't sit below it. The Lord God says to the woman, what is this that you've done? She says the serpent, serpent did it and does the same thing. What's going on in Cain's heart? Why is he so mad? Abel got some, whoa, good job, Abel. Way to go with your offering. And Cain got some, ooh, Cain, I don't know about that. And he's furious about it. In the next scene, he's going to kill his brother. He's going to eliminate the competition so he doesn't have to be below anybody. And we might not kill people for it, but we gossip, we slander, we relish in other people's pain. We throw people under the bus all the time. I think this explains so much of what goes on in my heart, what goes on in our hearts. Uh, I think it explains the isms I think it explains racism. So I think it's the best explanation of racism that is completely illogical. But my group is better than your group. And so as long as I'm in the group that's elevated, um, then I feel okay or okay in that realm. I can go to this place and feel okay in this place, even if in a bunch of other places, I don't feel okay. I think it explains sexism, nationalism. It probably explains why UNC hates Carolina so much or the Packers hate the Bears or whatever it is. Classism, like this dynamic is there. And Cain ultimately wants control. He wants to define enough. He wants to define what he owes God, what will make this right. He wants to define good and evil when it comes to the offering that he's made to God that God has said is not good enough. Uh, he's not repenting from having eaten from that tree. He wants more. What's going on in his heart is really the essence of sin. One person suggested that these two offerings, there's two reasons that you bring an offering. One is because you're placing yourself at God's mercy. Like, you know you've screwed something up, and you'll do anything to make it right. Um, and, so, and so Abel brings, and this is the, the, discern, the one discernible difference between their offerings. Abel brings from the first fruits of the flock and the fat portions, and the fat would cover the most valuable organs in the animal. And so he brings from the first fruits. He brings um, the best. And so he's bringing, but he's bringing, this isn't like tithing. It's not like 10% because if it's the first fruits, you don't know what the rest of the year is going to bring. It's like 100% because you're bringing the first, like all you have because he's given you the right to have everything and you want to bring him your best. And so that's what Abel does. And that is the best we can do in discerning what the difference between these two offerings of. And Cain's response, I think, validates it. Cain just brings a portion from what he got in from the fields. And the other reason to bring an offering is really just because you're supposed to, like you want to get somebody off your back. But you don't necessarily think that you need to bring that offering. And so when God rejects Cain's offering, like his response shows what's really in his heart. And what's really in his heart comes out like, my offering was fine. There's nothing wrong with it, and you should accept it. Like he doesn't really get it. And so the Lord says, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. There's a simple fix, Cain, just like 
I'm going to give you some instructions, and you can bring a different offering next time. And Cain is like, no. That's not what's going to happen. Um, I read this quote from A.W. Tozer a few years ago, and it stuck with me because I know I don't realize the depth of my own sin. He says, because man is born a rebel, he's unaware that he is one. Because man is born a rebel, he is unaware that he is one. It's the, sin is the air we breathe. It's hard for us to see the depth of it. His constant assertion of self, as far as he thinks of it at all, appears to him a perfectly normal thing. He's willing to share himself, sometimes even sacrifice himself for a desired end, but never to dethrone himself. No matter how far down the scale of social acceptance he may slide, he is still in his own eyes a king on a throne, and no one, not even God, can take that throne from him. Again, I've kept that in mind because I know I don't know. Um, when you become a Christian, like, everyone knows things that need to change about you. You know what I mean? Because they tend to be more external things. You walk with Christ for a few years, and there are things that you were convinced were normal, that God's like, no, those are really the result of sin patterns in your life, and those need to change too. This is a whole nother level where you're just surrendering, and you feel like you've given so much. He's like, no, you don't get it. I want you to surrender everything, to dethrone yourself, to give me complete control. Abel, in the scene, seems willing to dethrone himself. Cain does not. And so Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, another translation, that's Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Uh, he doesn't change. He lies about his brother God, I'm going to skip some verses, Mason. God complains, God gives him a, a punishment and he complains that it's unfair. God tells him he's going to be a wanderer and he goes and builds a city. Uh, and then the end of this is that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the lot of, land of Nod, east of Eden. He, he goes away from the presence, further away from the presence of the Lord. Now, when that when, when the Lord says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, um, that is the cry for justice. It's a cry that's heard throughout the Bible from, you know, different contexts. Um, and God responds to that, to that cry. And ultimately, justice is going to be provided in Jesus. Um, another thing he does in this book, he spends a few chapters, and I think this was really smart. He said, if Jesus were not missing the thing, that we're missing. If Jesus had a perfect sense that he's loved and he's good because he had perfect relationship with his father, then he would look different. He would look as a human different than us in some fairly specific ways. And he's absolutely right. And so at uh, Jesus' um, baptism, the Holy Spirit comes down, the Lord declares, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He is loved and he's good. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And, and so he never wondered that. And he never had to use people. He didn't make, put someone down to make himself feel better. None of that stuff. And so Miller goes through this, and he says he would, he would believe that all people are equal. He would treat everybody the same because he had no reason to treat them differently. And you look at how Jesus treated people, and that's one of the things that people gravitate to and is most spectacular, 
Is that's, that's what he did. I mean, he was hard on some people, the Pharisees, but the Pharisees were the people that he should be kissing up to to get something out of, you know, to gain from them. But he treats them by the same rules that he treats everybody else. He points out that Isaiah says that Jesus was not a good-looking guy. I mean, there's a prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah that says, like, he had nothing that we should look upon him and think that he was good-looking. He was kind of ugly. Now, if you could come to earth and you could be pretty or you could be ugly, because you just can't do much with that, right? What would you choose? Pretty people get ahead on earth, you know? And he didn't, he just wasn't concerned about, he wasn't concerned about that. Uh, He liked everybody. I don't think there was ever a time where the disciples are like, well, we got to go hang out with those people and wherever. And Jesus is like, oh, man, I don't want to hang out with that guy, you know? Like, he, he, he just had, he gravitated towards people. He didn't have a fear of intimacy. He had a patience with people, a kindness with people. He wasn't missing the thing. When we pull away from God, we're naturally going to be pulled away from each other. Division is a, just a natural result of that. When we draw near to God in the presence of God, our ability to draw near to each other is, is restored because of what God gives us. Um, and, and ultimately, God's terms for restoring his presence are going to be met through Jesus. And so Jesus, the one that had that perfect sense of he's loved and he's good, like that perfect presence of God on the cross gives up that perfect presence of God in a way that I don't, I, I'm not sure to what extent, to what depth. I know that, you know, it says when he was on the cross, on the ninth hour, he cried out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like there's some distance between the Father and the Son. That line is the beginning of Psalm 22, um, and Jesus is doing that on purpose. The people that he's talking to would know Psalm 22. And that psalm goes on in part, Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. It goes on and says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him, for he delights in him. He says, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They're, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. It's really in some ways a prophecy of what happens on the cross. And so the one who had the perfect presence of Christ or of God sacrificed the perfect presence of God so that we might gain the perfect presence of God. He did what we needed. We didn't need fig leaves. We didn't need the first fruits of our flock or our field. We didn't need to elevate ourselves and put other people down. There were consequences to eating of that tree, consequences to our sin, and no offering um, but Jesus was enough to put the genie back in the bottle. We needed the perfect, sinless Son of God to take the consequences of our sin and to make us good again. And I said this at the end last week too. He never stopped loving us. He never stopped loving us. He'll never love you any more or any less than he does in this moment. We, we, weren't, we are not good. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we are only good 
when Christ offers us his righteousness and takes our unrighteousness and ends up on the cross, and that is the gospel. Um, in a minute, we're going to take communion, and, um, and the way we do that is there be, uh, Alan and Casey are going to be up here, and they'll have the bread and the cup, and they're just going to say, this is the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. You don't have to say anything, or you can say thanks be to God, or you can say amen, or whatever you want to say, or say hi. Uh, and you can do that whenever during these next few songs. But we're going to do that to remember what Christ has done for us. And um, uh, Kelly and Julie, you guys can, can come back up. And I'll just finish with this. I mentioned the queen at the beginning, um, and I want to bring her back up here at the end. It's the queen lived in an exalted state for 96 years, but for 70 years when she was on the throne. And the outpouring of gratitude, part of it, I think, is that like, it's bizarre that this ties us back. It's like George Bush being president from when he flew in World War II to when he died a couple years ago. Like, something that ties us back through generations. Um, but part of it is the way that she carried herself and the humility that the queen had. And she didn't flaunt her privilege. She seemed to use it for the benefit of others. She made this confession of service when she was 21. Before she was queen, she declared that her life would be a life of service. She lived that out. She seemed to live that out faithfully. Um, she just didn't, wasn't grasping for, for things. And, and this way she lived her life. I don't know if you heard the story. They said that there was some, she was hiking in Scotland near the Balmoral where she passed away um, with her like bodyguard guy. And they ran into an American couple, tourists, who didn't know who they were. And, um, and so they, they asked, do you guys live near here? And she's like, yeah, our family has a house over the hills. And, uh, and the couple asked, have you ever met the queen? And the queen said, I haven't, but this guy sees her all the time. And so they, they asked the guy what she's like. And the guy, quick as a whip, said, she's a bit cantankerous, but she has a good sense of humor. <laughs> and so they said, well, can we get a picture with you, with the guy that had met the queen? So they gave their camera to the queen <laughs> to take a picture of them with her bodyguard. And she did it. And then she made sure that they got a picture with her as well because they knew at some point they'd figure out what had happened. Like just a delightful story, you know, for somebody with that privilege. And I had heard she's a devout Christian. Um, a buddy of mine in John and I's cohort was over in Scotland the week before she passed with some Presbyterian pastors who said they'd heard she's read every, every word that Tim Keller's written and and just really loves Jesus. Like it, and she'd mentioned that in her Christmas messages and stuff like that. And, that. and I was sure that she planned every detail of her funeral. And so I got up early on Monday morning, and I watched the whole thing, and I was, I was like, just like a hawk. I thought it was fascinating. And she used 1 Corinthians 15. She used Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Like, it's a funeral I would preach. Um, and then she, and she had these hymns. And you couldn't understand the hymns because it's choir and it's in Westminster Abbey and they're British and there's an orchestra. And so I started looking up the hymns and the last hymn was like Love Divine or something. I forget what I said it was. It was a Charles Wesley hymn. And the last, the last verse, this is the last verse of the last hymn of her, of her service, the public service in Westminster Abbey. Finish then thy new creation, true and spotless, let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. And so it seems to me like this woman was telling the whole world 
the woman with the most famous crown in the world was saying, here's what I'm looking forward to, just putting that down before my true king. She was willing to be dethroned. And um, that's what he calls us to. That's what we're made for. And that will be our greatest peace and joy. Father, thank you for telling the truth in the Bible. That in chapters 3 and 4, we have tragedy, Lord. And we have tragedy in our lives, Lord. We needed to know that tragedy doesn't show up halfway through the book. Tragedy shows up at the beginning, Lord, because tragedy in big and little ways shows up early and often in our lives. But thank you for letting us know that you have a plan and your plan was Jesus and that he is available to us and through him, your perfect presence is available to us, God. I pray that we would know that as our greatest good, the thing that we're made for, that we would trust you in it, God. And that through finding that, we would find peace with each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.